Hello, and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. First of all, sorry that this has been delayed by some technical difficulties. Uh, This is co-host Jack Ruster-Munley, by the way. Uh, But I mostly wanted to hop in here because there is something that got cut from both the previous episode and this episode um, for a very good reason, which is that there was a fantastic outcome to what Connor and I were perhaps complaining about a little bit. Um, it is also the reason that in the old uh, text threads, we began calling ourselves the Bio Boys. Um, that reason being that for both the Arthur C., episode that we did and for this episode when Connor and I visited the Poetry Foundation website and read the biographies that were available for both of these poets we found some issues you might say Uh, with Arthur Z it was that there was only two sentences to uh, describe an incredibly storied career in letters Uh, it turns out the reason for that was and fair play to Connor. He called his shot on this one. This was his theory as to why it was only two sentences. It was the biography that had accompanied a recent publication in uh, Poetry Magazine. And so Connor fired off a little tweet, a little keyboard activism there, and results are in. The bio got updated. If you go to the Poetry Foundation website and look up Arthur Z, you'll see a beautiful full biography of, uh, of him. And with today's poet, Samuel Ace. When we visited the Poetry Foundation website, Samuel Ace's dead name was all over the bio. And after checking around the internet a little bit, because in some of Samuel Ace's poetry, he addresses his dead name in, in kind of a conversational way almost. And so we wanted to see, is this something that's kind of done? And it turns out that it really wasn't in other biographies. Again, put in a quick little keyboard activist tweet to the Poetry Foundation. Lo and behold, the bio has been updated. So really wanted to include this basically to encourage all of you to join us if you come across bios, particularly on the Poetry Foundation website, because even more so than Wikipedia, that's kind of a hub of information about specifically poetry and poets. Send them 
a note, either tag them on Twitter or send an email to the Poetry Foundation and just let them know because obviously they are listening and they were super responsive and we were really grateful for that. So just wanted to hop in and make note of that because, you know, we want we want the best, most comprehensive and most accurate information about poets and poetry out there. So hopefully all of you uh, you know, if you see something, say something. Okay, um, that's going to do it. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we have, yet again, uh, another poem for you today. Another wonderful poem. Uh, from a wonderful poet. Well, okay, so the poem uh, we're going to talk about today is called I Hear a Dog Who is Always in My Death. And it's by Samuel Ace. And Ace is a trans and genderqueer poet, as well as a sound artist. And he's the author of a number of books. The most recent ones are Our Weather, Our Sea. He teaches uh, at Mount Holyoke College, I believe, and is is widely anthologized and um, widely read. And I discovered his work first in the marvelous anthology that I've just been working through, which is called We Want It All. And that's an anthology that was published by Nightboat Books. Um, The editors were Kay Gabriel and Andrea Abby Karam, and it came out in 2020, and it's an anthology of radical trans poetics. Uh, we want it all, and that's where I discovered it. So, yeah, this poem is called "I Hear a Dog Who Is Always in My Death." Um, yeah, and I think maybe I'll read it, and then we can uh, jump right in. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> radical <laughs> departure from our usual system. <laughs> This time we're going to read the poem and then talk about it instead of talking about it first. I love it. Uh, Okay. This is, I hear a dog who is always in my death by Samuel Ace. How is it you bring me back to the cliffs, the bright heads of eagles, the vessels of grief in the soil? I dig for you with a gentle bit of lighter fluid and three miniature rakes burning only a single speck of dirt to touch a twig as tiny as a neuron, or even smaller, one magic synapse inside the terminus limbs of your breath. The fighter jets fly over the house every hour, no sound but inside our hands. I hear a far chime and I am cold, a north wind and the grit of night. First, the murmur, then the corpse. First the paddling, then the banquet. First the muzzle, then the hanging, the plea. First the break, then the tap, the tap. I hear your skin, the reach of your arms, the slick along your thighs, more floorboard than step. First the flannel, then the gag. First the bells, then the exhale. I hear a dog who is always in my death, the breath of a mother who holds a gun. 
the pillow in the shape of a heart. First the planes, then the criminal ponds. First the ghost boats, then the trains. First the gates, then the bargain. A child formed from my fingertip and the eye of my grandmother's mother. A child born at 90. The rise and rush of air. A child who walks from the gas. This is a fascinating poem. I know. I kind of picked it even before I really knew what was happening in it because I was like, sometimes when I'm reading poems, I get sort of transfixed, like in the first reading, like it comes out of the page or the screen and just like hooks me and I'm like, I don't know. And this happened with that one. And I just was like, oh my God. Um, it's quite vivid, even if it is perhaps a more opaque poem from a from a strict meaning standpoint. However, what you just said makes it sound like you have discerned its meaning. So I'm interested <laughs> to know. Well, even before I really figured out what it was about, I was I was hooked. Great. So what's it about? Oh no, shoot, I messed <laughs> up. Well, okay. I I know a little bit more, but that's in some ways just because of um, Ace's gracious own um, writing about it. So this was this was a um, poets.org um, has the kind of poem a day um, that they do every day. And this was the uh, poem a day on January 10th, 2019. Um, and with those, they usually have um, like a little kind of note about the poem that the poet provides. And I, it doesn't explain everything, but I think it gives me a good entry. And so, yeah, this is what Samuel Ace wrote about this poem. Um, I wrote this poem one morning, feeling the closeness of death, the remoteness of the dead, and the persistent rise and reprise of fascism. I yearned to speak to relatives I never knew, like my great-grandmother, who, as a Jew, was murdered in Europe during World War II. I also longed to know my mother and father again in their new incarnations. Maybe I actually do know them all and am only vaguely aware they live close by, perhaps just down the block. Poems are communication far beyond words they are made of, a dog's language, a future, or a shovel digging toward those who have just gone or are long gone or are simply the breath of a spirit who is knocking on the door and wants to come inside, sit for a minute, drink a cup of coffee and tell us where they've been. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, initially, as I kind of said in, in before we read the poem, I, I didn't find, I didn't encounter this first on the poem a day. I, it was sort of in the anthology and so, uh, the we want it all um, anthology, but but then when I was sort of reading more about it, I found that it was the poem, the poem a day, and so that I mean, you know, from I think there's a lot in that about this poem note, um, but one of the things is like I think it gives us a 
a kind of a big picture sense that we probably, I think, could have gleaned, um, which is this kind of like the poem feels like this kind of, you know, what Ace says in the beginning, one morning feeling the closeness of death, the remoteness of the dead. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like this kind of dreamscape of death and the dead that we're kind of in. Yeah. But then the other part, um, you know, the poem ends, you know, a child formed from my fingertip and the eye of my grandmother's mother, a child born at 90, the rise and rush of air, a child who walks from the gas. Um, and he says, you know, my Jewish great grandmother was murdered in Europe during World War II. And so a lot of the images feel like they're sort of of the that World War II like Holocaust setting um, in some way. Not, I mean, it's unclear exactly how his great grandmother was murdered, but the kind of the fighter jets that appear, um, you know, a child walking from the gas, uh, the planes, the ghost boats, the trains, gates, um, these kinds of things like feel like somewhat in a, a setting of World War II in Europe during that time. Yeah, especially, so, especially yeah. at that ending, I think, is where it sort of clicked for me. And honestly, it's the last line, a child who walks from the gas, where I suddenly thought, oh, okay, now I know where we are. Because even before that, like the fighter jets, every hour is pretty often, but I was imagining, you know, F-14s or whatever initially. Right, um, yeah. But yeah. by the time you get to the end, the combination of the trains and the gates and the child who walks from the gas, that was when that kind of clicked into place for me yeah and and like i mean it's it's fairly well talked about but like the gas as in you know gas chambers that the nazis used to do systematic genocidal killing of jewish people uh, millions um yeah which is very intense um but then, yeah, thinking about this, I don't know. I was like, maybe this isn't the, well, I don't know. Maybe it is the time. Like I was reading this, uh, at, starting to read this anthology, We Want It All. Um, and I, I just was like, oh, this just seems like, um, I don't know. I just was like, I was also reading it's, um, like introduction from the editors. Um, and, you know, so it came out, the anthology came out in, I think, November, 2020, maybe. Um, so it's pretty recent. And um, I don't know, it just, it felt like uh, a very important sort of like, project and book still right now and maybe even it's becoming even more like urgent i guess um but like so the the introduction starts like we're writing at a juncture of crisis 
of longstanding roots and rapid progression, deeply embedded in economy and ecology and palpably felt at the level of everyday life. We're also writing in a moment of revivified theory and practice against capital and empire, characterized by widespread strikes and insurrections and international prison abolitionist movement, the legacies of Occupy and Black Lives Matter, anti-pipeline blockades led by indigenous water and land protectors at Standing Rock and Wet'suwet'en, the rediscovery by the queer and trans left of the anti-capitalist and anti-colonial politics of the gay liberation era, revitalized labor militancy, rent strikes, housing occupations, anti-fascist mobilizations, the rapid expansion of mutual aid networks, and still exhilaratingly more. Um, and so like, um, and then they sort of say, you know, the title of this volume, We Want It All, is therefore entirely literal. What we want is nothing other than a world in which everything belongs to everyone. Anyway, sorry, I just, this whole thing is <laughs> fascinating to me. But so then uh, they keep writing. We have two perversions to offer to this comradely slogan. <laughs> um, the first is the claim that as trans people, we address this situation of crisis from a particular standpoint or related series of standpoints, which inform how we think about struggle in the broader terms of left social and political movement. The struggle for gender liberation um, touches directly on movements for ecological and climate justice, for a world without prisons and borders, for a liberatory reworking of gender and sexual relations, and for universal access to housing and healthcare. Um, and yeah, and then like as a collection of writing by trans people against capital and empire, this book attempts to piece together these multiple points of overlap between the subjective, the, the subjective interpersonal and everyday modes of trans life and the internationalist horizons of the fights we are already engaged in. Here's another sort of the second perversion. The second is the sense that poetry bears on the project of imagining and making actual a totally inverted world. We don't hold that poetry is a form of or replaces political action. Poetry isn't revolutionary practice. Poetry provides a way to inhabit revolutionary practice to ground ourselves in our relations to ourselves and each other, to think about an unevenly miserable world and to spit in its face, which I love. Yeah, and it's, it's this huge anthology. And I I've been thinking about that in the context of like, just this year, the kind of, the like the world has already, and the country has already been so like anti-trans and transphobic um, and like more broadly, like anti-queer and gay and um, LGBTQ plus. But this year just feels like it's been uh, escalating in a way that's very terrifying. Um, and I mean, part of this is like, 
you know, um, you know, there was a, the, from a, just a CBS news article in April of this year, um, there's been a record number of anti-trans bills that states have passed. Um, there's like through more than 300 anti-LGBTQ plus bills have been proposed. Um, many have passed. There's the kind of horrifying one in Texas that, well, I guess it's like, it's, it's a, I don't even know what the status of it is. It's, it's a opinion by the AG and the governor that basically gender affirming healthcare is child abuse, basically. Yeah. And I think important note is that part of, I believe it was cited in that opinion, the very lengthy piece in the New York Times magazine that editorially the attitude was, we're presenting the debate. We're letting you know that this is a contentious issue and there's people who talk about it. But the way that the story was framed, the way it described the issue, the people that were interviewed for that piece, many of them were radical anti-trans activists. And that piece and pieces like it running in center-left outlets and legacy media gives so much credence to what are essentially these fringe, violent bills. Um, that, I think, has been a real feature you know, you're right, I think, about pinpointing this year that it's not just that all this legislation is coming out, it's that there is not the will, it doesn't seem, amongst the sort of commentariat class or the legacy media to really take this on as the human rights issue that it is and to be full-throated in their defense of people's humanity and to somehow view this as something to be debated as opposed to it's people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. I think that's really right. Yeah. Cause that's the other sort of shift that's, that's happened is this kind of both sides ism. I mean, we've been texting each other uh, the latest uh, insane things that are happening, but there was like a recent op-ed of like Fareed Zakaria, who was like, forget pronouns, like Democrats need to build shit or whatever and it's like what the fuck are you guys doing like this is so crazy but it, it's this thing where like that statement and the the kind of like both sides investigation from the new york times is like part of the same piece as the full-throated like fascist right-wing shit because that is taking the full-throated fascist right-wing shit and being like huh worth considering, but pretending like it's not what it is, but that like gives it a platform. Um, and I don't know, I, like to me, someone who's been very, I think, clear-eyed about this that I've been very grateful to have recently encountered um, is the historian um, Jules Gill-Peterson. Her, her first book is, um, which I haven't read, but I want to, is Histories of the Transgender Child. So this is like, a, there's an interview with her, and this is like the kind of opening paragraph, but is kind of like about what her claim is that, that to me, 
is like what the issue actually is, um, is like since 2020, over 400 bills that have been proposed at the state level that eliminate or ban trans people from accessing public life, education, and gender-affirming care. Historian Jules Gilpeterson has called these laws out for what they truly are, not moral issues at play in a culture war, which the New York Times and the kind of democratic establishment <laughs> or whatever would, would have you think, um, but are echoes of eugenics policy making. Um, eugenic policy making is an idea from disability studies, and it is a policy that dictates what kinds of life are acceptable, which should be promoted, and which should be subject to what abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmer calls, quote, organized abandonment, um, in which the state makes itself through policing, surveillance, and denial of the resources people need to survive. Um, and Gil Peterson has also just sort of said that these are kind of like, quote, eliminationist laws and rhetoric, that it's, it's, um, and to me, like, that's, I don't know, I just like, fully agree. And like, that's, I don't know, it's very scary. And then when you think about the general, like, way of how politics is going in this country and like how close we are to not that we've ever been a robust uh representative democracy but um to like genuine authoritarianism like those two things are happening and like so then anyway this is a long um kind of contextual moment. But when I was reading this poem, and then I was reading it in the context of that anthology and the kind of introduction. And then when I read the note about like, I wrote this poem one morning, feeling the closeness of death, the remoteness of the dead and the persistent rise and reprise of fascism. Um, I yearn to speak to relatives I never knew, like my great grandmother, who as a Jew was murdered in Europe during World War Two. To me, it just it um, even though the, the poem itself is kind of like, um, which we'll talk more about, but, you know, not like directly naming any of those things that I've just talked about. It just like felt of a piece, I suppose, um, that all of these things are connected. Um, so, Definitely. yeah. Well, I think what you got you're you're getting at is like the the number of people who are kind of willing to give this issue a pass in some way. Um and I think many otherwise fairly liberal folks are not on board is <laughs> part of the problem. The the conservative establishment is all in for hating trans folks and liberals are like, I don't know, this seems confusing and strange to me. And <laughs> there's yeah. so there isn't really a, a consensus i mean it's i i hear casually anti-trans or just like disinterested comments more than almost anything else amongst fairly liberal folks um uh, i was sorting books the other day at the library book sale in nearby north bennington and there was a gender studies section and there was a book 
and a box labeled women's studies. And there was a question like, oh, is this is women's studies going to have a separate one or is it all just going in gender studies? It's all going in gender studies. And somebody goes, oh, I just I just can't keep up. <laughs> and like, that's the attitude. It's like, oh, it's all all this gender stuff. I don't even know. Every all oh, pronouns are oh, whatever. You know, like that is such a common initial response. Um, and someone who I really like uh, is the YouTuber ContraPoints. And mm. she's got a video about J.K. Rowling specifically and basically kind of decoding where does the turf mindset come from and what is it about. And it does a really great job of breaking down what are the constituent parts of bigotry because J.K. Rowling has come out and she's like, I'm against all forms of bigotry. I hate bigotry. It's terrible. Read my books. I don't like it. Um, when, in fact, she's doing all this turfy nonsense and being really, really quite heinous. That breakdown, I think, is really helpful because it does get at all of these seemingly altruistic coverings for really bigoted behavior. It's like, well, I'm just so concerned about X, Y, or Z. Like, I'm concerned about these kids who are questioning their gender, or I'm concerned about women's sports and protecting it from you know, whatever, like that, that's the rhetorical cover that so much of this gets. And that's also in many cases, the cover of the bigotry that leads to fascism. Oh, we're going to have a more ordered society. Oh, there's bad elements in the country who don't belong. And we'll make sure that you're safe from them. That rhetoric is completely of a piece. And yeah, I highly recommend checking out her video. It's about an hour long, but it's definitely worth it. Not only for a full understanding of just kind of what J.K. Rowling is up to. Ugh. Um, it's a year. It was about a year ago at this point that it came out. So it's also been a little while and Rowling has done more awful stuff. Um, but it's really good, especially since we're, you know, we're in the U.S. and a lot of our listeners are. The turf phenomena is kind of a U.K. based thing. Obviously, there are other places, but a lot of the radical feminists who self-identify that way are based in the in the U.K. What I found interesting specifically in this poem because i think you're totally right it's it's of a piece but where i saw it really being of a piece uh it was actually in the title and then where the title line is repeated because i was sort of puzzling over that quite a bit because there's so many different images and different moods in the poem and so many little specific moments that are created and called out you know you have the burning only a single speck of dirt to touch a twig as tiny as a neuron like that's a whole little moment that happens and right before it i dig for you with a gentle bit of lighter fluid and three miniature rakes that's a whole little concrete moment with all these images in it um so trying to kind of think about i don't want to say decode but i think that's kind of what i was doing um i know we don't solve poems we experience them or whatever but at some point i think poems like this kind of do we were talking with the arthur z poem that it's a poem that sort of resists you doing that kind of that specific kind of close reading where you're really decoding or getting inside the the syntax and the specific level of things this is a poem that feels to me like it wants like it's sort of more in a vein that 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 kind of a reading rewards um, but in thinking about that bit, I hear a dog who is always in my death uh, and why it's the title. I was thinking about, you know, dogs are a pretty powerful image in, you know, art and in literature and in folklore. And often the two things that they have signified 
are, I think the most common one, particularly nowadays is like loyalty and, you know, dog is your best friend. And when a dog is in a painting, it indicates that loyalty is happening or whatever, you know? Um, but the older folkloric meanings of dogs are often related to death. I mean, you go back to Egyptian mythology and you've got Anubis, the jackal-headed master of the dead. Um, and you also have, you know, folk tales about, and much as she sucks, she's actually relevant here because JK Rowling brought this to wide attention because it's in her book. Um, but the, the, um, the image of the church grim, which is like a spirit that protects a churchyard from nefarious and evil influence, but also could be a sign of death. And it was often depicted as a black dog, uh, and there's sort of a whole mythology around that that kind of spans countries in folklore. But the marriage in the image of the dog that is always in my death of loyalty and death is really powerful to me, especially in the context of a poem that then is ends that, you know, there's the three stanzas and this is the beginning of the third stanza. I hear a dog who is always in my death, starting with that marriage of loyalty and death and then ending with the pretty direct call out to gas chambers. I mean, that is fascism. It's loyalty that creates death on the political scale. And so that was my sort of immediate inroad into the poem was through the, the dog imagery. Wow. Yeah. One thing I also love and is particularly intense about that line that is also the title is the like, the in my death, the kind of like, um the strangeness of of putting like who is always in my death like death is a is a like the poem which and then the poem sort of feels like it is the space of the death right rather than um you know one could say more boringly i hear a dog who is always like you know, waiting for me when I die, or I hear a dog who is always there after my death, or or who is always uh, at my death. At my death, I found myself so unconsciously saying that in my head a couple of times when I was thinking about the poem and realizing, you know, it's in, not at. Yeah, and it's so different because if it's at, it's just like, well, yeah, it looks like that's happening over there. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, in, like it's involved. Um, which also, I mean, in some ways. I was also thinking about the those old church grims um, because they would sometimes it was part of the folklore is like they toll a bell that hard like means that your death is coming or something. Mm. Um, and so hearing a dog that is in my death made me that's part of what set me down that road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um no, and it's it's really interesting to to think about. I just when I was thinking about that, then I was thinking about there's something where I think it's um, this phrase that um, the prison abolitionist and writer uh, Miriam Kaba says often describes prisons um, as death making institutions um, and other other things that are like which 
to me is like a uh when when i think about that phrase the more i think about it it's it's like more more and more powerful because it's it's not just like um a passive neglect kind of thing it's like we're making death basically like we're creating the space for death um for very certain populations and people um but then yeah for some reason that also connects i mean that's like the most but then i was thinking about that when when the way you were connecting with like gas chambers and fascism and like that that is kind of the most extreme form of a death making the whole system is about death making but death making of a certain like yeah um when you see that with like first the ghost boats then the trains okay maybe the people on those boats and trains are alive when they're taking them but we know that they are headed to die we know that they are already dead by mm -hmm. the time they get on that boat or that train they are essentially ghosts um, and it also kind of calls out to them being from the past. It's the sort of phantoms of this era. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Um, well, and then it, 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 it also makes me thinking about it in this sort of explicit sort of like political valence, the way that we're doing right now, um, which is definitely not, I think, the only way to read the poem. Um, Although I think it's it's especially with the ending, it's like definitely a cent a big part of it. Um, but the whole, I think that the formal element that kind of captured me initially was like the first the then the part and the way that it sort of just the the rhythm, but also just the way that it it's a fascinating way to pair things um and then to repeat the first the then the you know first the murmur then the corpse first the paddling then the banquet it it remind for my first like sort of <laughs> very crude political reading was the kind of like i feel like the u.s is is in the first the part of it you know and like we're waiting to see if we're in the then the because it's like especially with some of these, you know, first the muzzle, then the hanging. First, you can't speak, then you're hanged, you know. Um, first the murmur, then the corpse. But it's also, it's this kind of, uh, hopefully there's no, hopefully there is the, a sufficient resistance to avoid then the thens um, in this present moment. I think it's it's a resonance with um with what you were reading from the anthology itself about imagining an inverted world, right? Where for a lot of folks, just understanding the moment we're in right now as very, very, very far along on the move to towards fascism and the potential loss of democracy, that is something that this poem i think calls you to 
consider. And that is, okay, it's not imagining the inverted world in the sort of utopian sense, but for a lot of folks, it would be inverting their view of the present to really feel the immediacy of the danger that a lot of people are in right now. Trans folks are in danger right now in this country, in many yeah. states. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that kind of world inversion where it's maybe it's more about revealing than it is about inverting, but it inverts someone's worldview by revealing some some hard and necessary truths of the present. Yeah, no, absolutely. I really agree with that. Um, and I also think there's a there's a sense of like to me it's like so hard to have a conversation about the state of the U S politics thing, because it's the, the like exceptionalism and like the singularness that we supposedly are is like just so loud that you like, can't be like, actually, it's very similar to this other time in history when this happened and then that happened after that. And, um, but we but, have the constitution yeah. <laughs> it can happen here. Um, no, it was, there's, I helped with a study about uh, an exhibition at the United States Holocaust museum called somewhere neighbors, which was about collaboration and complicity in the Holocaust. So all the folks who sort of went along basically, mm. um, and some stories about folks who, didn't but a lot of it was about like you can't have something like the holocaust happen without a lot of people just kind of going along with things and part of it it was uh understanding how teens were engaging with it and this was in 2014 and they were asked about some of the events that they learned about and they were shown photos of folks who were like on the side of the road with their belongings getting about to be taken off to uh, you know trains and and other transportation you know forced migration and also being taken off to camps and some of the questions were like you know could this happen here something along those lines and so many of them said it could never happen here and i think i wonder because that was 2014 trump hadn't run for president yet he hadn't even announced it's before before our present political moment, basically. <laughs> I would be very interested to know if that is the same view amongst young people who essentially, if they're teens now, pretty much their entire political awareness has been Donald Trump as a national political figure, right? Like if you're 17, he announced he was running for president when you're 10. So that there's a generation sucks. of folks who are about to age into voting who like this has been their political reality. Right. And right. I think on the one hand, you're right. I think for a lot of folks, they probably become more entrenched in the view that either it can't happen here or that's not what's happening here. We're protecting from X, Y, or Z. Like they're farther along the fascism line in the more dangerous direction. But I also mm -hmm. think a lot more people who've, Certainly those who've grown up with this kind of era of political life in the United States may, I, I hope at least, have a more kind of clear-eyed view of, of what's going on. Part of the overall atmosphere of the poem contributes a lot to this, I don't know, just the sense of foreboding. I mean, obviously, like, death is in the title and everything, um, but just a lot of the kind of the broader sensory 
stuff that's going on because you know i mentioned and i think you also pulled out a couple of these like little moments and the poem builds a lot of little moments but the bigger the bigger stuff that was sort of giving me my bearings especially on initial reads of like okay there's fighter jets every hour and there's cliffs and there's dirt and there's a chime in the distance and there's a north wind it's all very kind of cold and sparse and sinister on some level like i think it does a great job of very impressionistically building a setting that feels like it's kind of uh precarious mm-hmm. obviously right. the title helps a lot but even within the poem itself i feel like it does a lot of a lot of that as well i really agree with that um yeah and what what you were saying um one other thing that i've been thinking about with, with the the holocaust museum and the, the complicity aspect of it when one news story that um some people had been drawing attention to is like the day that the texas governor abbott like issued that sort of anti-trans decree or whatever he did um there was a um a trans teen in texas who had been hospitalized because he had attempted to die by suicide and then while in the hospital um you know the the medical staff learned that um the kid was receiving hormone therapy or whatever and reported the kid um but the news reports were like because of the governor's decree the staff had to report this thing and it's like oh did they no they didn't have to do it and it's it's i mean it it's similar to with like um with the dobbs decision and overturning roe where abortion is is be you know is illegal uh in a lot of states now and is in the process of becoming more and more where um like the 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 criminal the criminal like state the criminalizing state is entering new institutions with a bunch of people but like the people i mean it's like the effectiveness of that is that now a bunch of people have to make a choice of do i do something that is morally reprehensible but the law or do I skirt the law and do what I think is morally right? Um, and in the absence of probably like some sort of organized like resistance, it's going to be a lot of individuals making individual decisions. Do I do this or do I do that? Which like maybe a few people here and there individually would make the right decision, but like on the whole, that's the effect is people will quote, comply with the law and will be complying with these kinds of very authoritarian fascist laws and institutions. As so often is the case, I am reminded of uh, a bit from Inherit the Wind, one of the great... (laughs) the great American texts on our political situation because it touches on so many aspects of American life that uh, 
are in contention the same way the Scopes Monkey Trial on which it is based reveals many of the divisions that then loomed over the 20th century. Notably, race is an omission. It's not particularly dealt with. But in the uh, courtroom, in a... In quite a tirade that ends up getting him held in contempt of court, the character Henry Drummond, who is the lawyer defending the guy who's teaching about evolution, says, I say that you cannot administer a wicked law impartially. You can only destroy. You can only punish. Uh, And I warn you that a wicked law like cholera destroys everyone it touches, its upholders as well as its defiers. Because the people who uphold it are destroying themselves and the people who defy it face retribution. I have been thinking about that a lot <laughs> as these various <laughs> wicked laws have gone into effect because I don't think there's any other way to talk about something like Dobbs um, other than to say it's it's wicked. And, yeah. and the same with the various anti-trans bills that are getting pushed in legislatures across the country. And they destroy everything they touch. They make life harder for good people and they force a lot of folks to do things that they might not want to do, but they feel like they don't have a choice to do otherwise, even if they do. No, absolutely. Yeah. One thing that this poem was making me think of is like, it's like not just that both these things aren't happening um, in the present and in the past, but that they're also happening like in different places in different ways, obviously, but um this poem in particular um, was was making me think um, a lot of actually about our, our conversation with um, Noor Hindi um, and her book, Dear God, Dear Bones, Dear Yellow, which recently came out. Um, but the last poem in that book, Pledging Allegiance, um, which we talked about a little bit, but at the end of that poem, which is kind of a long sort of prose poem, it's this, um, you know, I'm locked out of my house. No, I can't recognize my home. I grabbed the wrong keys. The house has been painted a different color. There is music inside, but I don't understand the words. There is smoke inside, but nothing is burning. Um, All I do is wait. I peer in from the windows. The house is inhabited by ghosts. They recognize my face, but not my tongue. I try to find where it hurts. The ghosts laugh. Their laughs end with a sharp pang of grief. It sounds like a fist or a hand around my throat. I reach for them, begging to be let in. When I ring the bell, no one answers. I draw letters on the outside of the door. Um, And that's how that that book ends. and, And... Noor Hindi talked a little bit about that because we were bringing it up, but kind of this longing to speak with one's ancestors. Um, and I was sort of thinking about it in connection with like Palestine being under occupation and the, you know, like the settler colonial system um, that's been in place there since 48, many number of things, but like the, the Nakba cause in 1948 was like 700,000 Palestinians to be expelled. It's, it's well documented that, you know, in, within Israel, like Palestinian citizens 
are second class citizens, that there's a there's dozens of laws that distinguish the two and all this stuff. Um, and anyway, it's not that poem is that poem specifically is not about those situations. But I was thinking about it in the context of like um, both speakers of these poems, Noor Hindi and her uh, poem and Samuel Ace in the I Hear a Dog Who Is Always In My Death are kind of like, you know, waking up and, you know, in the note, Ace says, like the closest of death, the remoteness of the dead, the persistent rise and reprise of fascism. And this also, I long, you know, um, I yearned to speak to relatives I never knew like my great grandmother. Um, I long to know my mother and father, this kind of like longing to speak to an ancestor or a relative who inhabited a space, a scary space close to death. To me, that feels connected in both of those where like, for some reason, I, I, I was connecting to that, but then also just taking that this is like kind of disjointed because I have a, I'm having a lot of thoughts but I was also thinking about what you were saying about the sort of impressionistic aspect to this poem to me that's also very important to the poem and like when I was reading the like introduction to the anthology it was very like poets against capital and empire and like fuck the man kind of thing which is awesome but also like this is a part of that like kind of thing, even though the, the tone is different and I'm sort of struggling to articulate that, but one way that I've been thinking about it is because this, you know, this poem, I hear a dog who is always in my death is a prose poem and it's, it's notable. It doesn't have like any punctuation. It's kind of like, and, and that is a characteristic of a, a lot of Ace's work the one one of his recent books are whether rc um has you know broken into paragraphs with minimal punctuation and ace has reflected in some interviews uh and this is from um a piece in entropy mag ace said i find that punctuation is kind of like gender that it is an agreed upon thing that we agree a comma means this kind of breath, a period means this kind of breath. And I've never wanted to impose that on my readers, um, which I love. That's pretty um, cool. I like that yeah, a lot. Yeah. And there's another, um, there's an interview with Samuel Ace in Green Linden Press. And the interviewer says, much of your writing is prose poetry. Talk about that, basically. Um, and... Yeah, Ace says, uh, <laughs> I sometimes find lineated poetry somewhat claustrophobic. I don't always like to be directed as to how to hear things or how to read a line. I often read other poets out loud and I find that grammar, line breaks, even spaces in the poem direct me in a way that I often rebel against. I see the text block as being very layered and profoundly rich where all the possible voices can happen at once. And yes, you can read my text box through linearly, but I avoid punctuation where the line delineated by space between phrases or words is meant to be a suggestion only. Um, when I read the pieces out loud, the spacing and rhythms change from performance to performance where I breathe or don't breathe, where I choose to end a phrase or open up a phrase. 
um, I think of the prose poem as a very musical form. Um, so, which I, I kind of love that. Um, and this poem is, is very much in that vein. And, you know, there is lots of, you know, when I was reading it, it's like, okay, you have this first, the muzzle, then the hanging, the plea, first, the break, then the tap, the tap, like the plea is the plea. It's kind of in the, in the, in the poem, it's separate. It's like tabbed indented a little bit farther away from the hanging and also first the break. So is the hanging the plea or is the plea a kind of separate moment, like leaning more into the break? These are not questions that are answered through. Um, in this way, the poem is, is resisting a certain kind of sort of strict reading. I'm not quite sure what it is, but there's something to the the kind of like calling to the ancestors in this kind of like rise and reprise of fascism as ace said um this kind of impressionistic atmospheric language and then this sort of open syntax um which is like obviously ace's poetry it, like based on what I've just read is like often characterized this way. So it's not that, and some of his poems are not about the rise and reprise of fascism. They do, those three things are feeling related. Well, I think it's right. Cause it's a call to the ancestors in a particular way, right? Like we've talked about a couple of poems that sort of do this move in various ways. Another one with dogs in the title, hear the dogs crying. That's an imagined meeting with an ancestor, a stranger, Saeed Jones's poem, where he imagines what's what's going on with my mom in the afterlife, basically, um, and what what happens after death. Those are also calls to ancestors, but very, very different from what's happening here. The other thing that I would say is like amid all of the kind of dark, you know, scary content, you know, of, you know, a child who walks from the gas the openness of the syntax and the impressionistic it it also it's very and this is like maybe a boring thing to say but it's very beautiful and it's very soft burning only a single speck of dirt to touch a twig as tiny as a neuron or even smaller one magic synapse inside the terminus limbs of your breath whoa the smallness and then the S's of the synapse inside the terminus limbs of your breath. Um, the strangeness of terminus limbs of breath is very strange. Um, and then the kind of the haunting mixed, the kind of military haunting mixed with the very intimate body, like the fighter jets fly over the house every hour. No sound, but inside our hands, I hear a far chime and I am cold. Like inside our hands, it's almost like you feel the fighter jets vibrating in the hands, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, and that's 
I don't know. That's kind of amazing. Um, and even the, the way of a child formed from my fingertip and the eye of my grandmother's mother, a child born at 90, the rise and rush of air, like the kind of magical aging, but, but born, I don't know. It's like people are doing all coming out of the woodwork <laughs> and the fingertips. I don't know. There's just a, it's not lulling, but it's, it is, I do think of like a, the part, the part of the movie, the kind of calm before the storm where like they're all huddled on a, a boat kind of in the mist going to something in the next morning. That's when the big battle is going to happen. I don't know what movie I'm talking about, but I just wanted to draw attention to that aspect of the poem because I think it was a little easy for me to um, get carried away with what I was thinking of as the political kind of aspects of the poem, um, which are somewhat imposed, but I think maybe appropriately in some instances, but then at the same time, there's like the texture and the sounds and the language of the poem are this other sort of um, presence that is, is really important and powerful. Definitely. And I like that idea of the calm before the storm, because I think even in some little bits of the poem, there's a, the way the sounds work is a little bit like that. You have first the murmur, the nice R sounds and murmur is a soft word. And then the corpse with a really hard, harsh sound. Um, or you have more floorboard than step. Mm. And it's another like, oh, we're going along and the jackboot of fascism steps on you again, you know, or, or whatever. <laughs> um but aside from the message of those lines, you also get the sounds lulling you and then a pretty harsh word that comes along at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Should we read it again? Let's hear it again. Okay. This is I Hear a Dog Who Is Always In My Breath by Samuel Ace. How is it you bring me back to the cliffs? the bright heads of eagles, the vessels of grief in the soil. I dig for you with a gentle bit of lighter fluid and three miniature rakes, burning only a single speck of dirt to touch a twig as tiny as a neuron, or even smaller, one magic synapse inside the terminus limbs of your breath. The fighter jets fly over the house every hour, no sound, but inside are hands. I hear a far chime and I am cold. A north wind and the grit of night. First the murmur, then the corpse. First the paddling, then the banquet. First the muzzle, then the hanging. The plea. First the break, then the tap, the tap. I hear your skin the reach of your arms, the slick along your thighs, more floorboard than step. First the flannel, then the gag. First the bells, then the exhale. I hear a dog who is always in my death, 
the breath of a mother who holds a gun, a pillow in the shape of a heart. First the planes, then the criminal ponds. First the ghost boats, then the trains. First the gates, then the bargain. A child formed from my fingertip and the eye of my grandmother's mother. A child born at 90. The rise and rush of air. A child who walks from the gas. That can only mean one thing. The trumpets have sounded, and I want to know what you're reading, watching, or listening to these days. What have you got to recommend, Connor? Oh, wow. Amazing. Have I recommended? I know I've mentioned it to you, but the podcast Death Panel, I don't think I have. I'm not sure. I know you've definitely recommended it to me. I don't remember if we did it on the podcast. (laughs) It comes out twice a week, but only one is available for the plebs, which includes me. Just kidding. It's just for, they got a little Patreon going on. Um, but it's a, it's a podcast about the political economy of health. Um, and they are amazing and are one of the only places that I found railing against the ongoing pandemic in a way that feels accurate to the scale of the problem. Um, Hundreds of people are dying every day. It's so crazy. I the the weird thing, it's like, okay, we don't need to get into all of this, but like during Trump, it was terrifying. Also, one half of the media apparatus and political apparatus was dedicated to saying how terrible it was, which in fact, it was terrible. Now under Biden, the right side has is doing its own weird, horrible thing about other things um, that are terrible, as we have talked about on this episode, in fact. <laughs> but since uh, Biden's trying to take the W and everyone's trying to say it's all fine and we figured it out and we have the tools Uh, even though the tools are no longer being funded and we do not have the tools, nor are we using the tools that we have. We have the knowledge. We have the knowledge. We know what the tools are. We know the tools and what they should be and where they should be and how we should use them. There once were tools. Once I have heard tell of these tools. Did you know that primates use tools? What? I know. And and we have them too. So... (gasps) I'm going to use a stick to get some termites later <laughs> just to celebrate my heritage. Um, anyway, you read the, you read the, I don't know. It's just, it's very strange because all the signals, the news, the media, the political signals are like COVID's over and COVID is not in fact over. Um, and yeah. And, and this, like, um, I just, it's been very, in addition to being still worried about the pandemic, I've had the, which I think we've probably talked about, I've had the extra sort of jarringness of being like, I think things are still bad. 
but then my reality and what seems to be the reality is being kind of denied and obfuscated and kind of like shoved off into a corner by most things. And to me, to me, the most, which, and this kind of fact I learned about on death panel, um, to me, the most sort of glaring example of this was during the winter, during the Omicron surge, which Biden administration was like, this is going to be a cruel winter of death for the unvaccinated. Yeah, it's a Uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated. Exactly. That was the line. And that's what, like, most people I knew thought. Um, And when you crunch the numbers, A, by, you know, February, 40% of deaths were vaccinated people. Um, And if you took the totals of deaths uh, from like the fall to February, it's a hundred thousand vaccinated people died, which is uh, death panel has an episode on it that they've titled an incalculable loss, which is what the New York times famously, uh, led with, I think appropriately when the death toll in the U S reached a total of a hundred thousand under Trump. Um, they were slow to commemorate when it reached a million. Um, they eventually did, I think, but I, I bring that up because I think it's just, to me, it shows like how bad things are and were, um, and how completely wrong the main narrative of like, if you're vaccinated, you're fine. Um, and it's like the disparities have remained, you know, the, the racial and economic disparities have remained the same. Um, and just like older people are just getting fucked over. Um, and it, it, it's just like, it's very disturbing because it's not going anywhere. Um, and like even the vaccines, which have been working very well, one of the things that they pointed out on the podcast is like, um, the more, like if you're, if you have a vaccine only (laughs) public health approach and you're not doing like masking or, you know, what, what they call NPIs or non-pharmaceutical interventions, like paid sick leave. It's not just the nasty lockdowns, although those, those are uh, good when things are really bad and you can pay people to stay home if you lived in a reasonable country that cared about the general well-being of people, which we do not. But if you have a vaccine-only approach, which has been the Biden administration's approach for quite some time, the efficacy of the vaccine is undermined because you're subjecting it to just variant after variant and exposure after exposure. And so you have a situation now where um, we don't have maybe funding for another booster or whatever for everybody. And 
um, the vaccines are just becoming much less effective. They're still obviously way more effective than not being vaccinated, um, which this, I am not <laughs> saying that. They still um, help, but they aren't the only thing. Don't get vaccinated and then think that you can act like there's no pandemic. We're yeah. still all in this together and there are still variants that are vaccine resistant. Yes. You what have I, to do yeah. a bunch of stuff to stop the spread of COVID, primarily mask when you're indoors, try and keep social distance, try yes. to limit your time indoors in groups. That's kind of the basics. Meet outdoors if you can. It's the summer here in the United States. Like, go outside, meet folks in non indoor places, like weather permitting, obviously. But, like, you know, that sort of stuff, I think a lot of folks have not uh, stayed hip to how important all of those things remain to do because folks are tired of wearing masks and they're tired of having to think about where and how and how many people get together. But it's the reality we're in. If you don't like it, let's talk to the government about it. Right. That's the thing is like the other thing that I've appreciated is it's kind of been easy to, and I still feel this often, like sort of treat the future as inevitable, like, okay, the government's given up and the pandemic is just going to course through the population and to the nth number of times. Um, and, and I think one thing that I, that I have appreciated about listening to this podcast is that they are very insistent that it does not have to be this way. <laughs> yes. Um, that there are ways of, you know, part, partly it's, it's just continuing to point out that things are still bad and that there are approaches that would make things better, but it's also like organizing people and getting groups together and like contacting, not just contacting representatives, but just like organizing politically is a way to change how things will go. Um, and I've trying, I've been trying to hold on to that. Um, and the other, the other aspect of, of the podcast that I really like is that they, you know, um, they obviously talk about COVID a lot now, cause that's been pretty dominant thing in life. Um, they also talk about a lot of other things and they actually had, um, they've had, uh, Jules Gil Peterson on a number of times to talk about various things who I had mentioned, um, you know, had talked about the anti-trans laws. Um, and actually she was on death panel and they, they talk about that piece that you mentioned, Jack, the Emily Bazelon's battle mm -hmm. over gender therapy. And they just kind of rip it to shreds in a way that is very right. Um, and yeah, so I just, to me, I think if you're feeling at all like, well, if you're feeling any kind of way about health, <laughs> I recommend that. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I am going to go look up that episode about the, the New York times piece because that was just so infuriating to read. And it's like 12,000 words. It's so long. It's so much time. It's so much of the paper's resources. It's so much of the paper's space given over to this. Like it's a novella of nonsense. It's so frustrating. And then 
to have the reporter defending it on Twitter and defending really, truly indefensible choices, like using the term patient zero in a context that just doesn't fit and trying to defend it as saying like, this is how someone described it to me and blah, blah, blah. It's like, this is really odd. Very, very odd. Um, and yeah. yeah, it's so telling. Yeah. I'm definitely going to, I have listened to a few episodes because even independent of the pod, you have mentioned it <laughs> before. <laughs> I talk I'm about it a lot. Look, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great podcast. It really is. I should fully subscribe and listen all the time. Um, but I will, I'm going to look up that episode specifically for sure. Yeah, no, definitely do. Cause they, they actually do talk about the length of the piece in one moment and so like long. why, why they do that. And also, um, Basilon, the writer of the piece, uh, did talk to, um, Gills Peterson. And so she talks about that and she's like, <laughs> I explained this to the writer many times. <laughs> yeah. So pretty rough. But that is. Uh, yeah, death panel, um, check it out. And the best thing, which actually gives me, it's not the best thing, but it gives me chills a little bit every time is they end every episode, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. Nice. Um, and it's, they do it every time, but I, it just, I don't know, makes me emotional. Um, it's a good sign off. It is a good sign off. Maybe we need to figure out a sign off at some point. You're right. 160 some episodes in. <laughs> yeah. Something um, solidarity forever. Read a poem this week. Read a poem. Talk about a poem. <laughs> solidarity a forever. Poem. It's solidarity forever. Read a poem again. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well. Okay, that's me. What about you, Jack? What have, what have you been? Uh, what have you been up to? What have you been reading or listening well, to? I went a little wild last time because it had been a while since we recorded, and I definitely didn't cover a bunch of stuff that I've been reading, watching, and listening to. Um, <laughs> little peek behind the scenes: we're recording only a few days later. Um, True, but I only have one recommendation this week, and it is the documentary film Flea. Do you know about this film? F L E E Flea. No. Okay. So it got attention at film festivals and also I think because of who its executive producers are, because the executive producers are Riz Ahmed and Nikolai Koster Waldeu, um, who are best known as high profile actors in many different projects. Nikolai Koster Waldeu is uh, Jamie Lannister in Game of Thrones, amongst other roles. And Riz Ahmed was in Rogue One. Um, he was in, uh, what's the name of that HBO series last night? Oh. Or the night of the night of that's it um something happened last night you know he's in the the death of a drummer so he's in a bunch of stuff he was uh the other kind of one of the few main characters in the film nightcrawler with uh jake gyllenhaal and gyllenhaal. he's in rogue one and he uh yeah, he's in a bunch of stuff. He was he was in Venom. He was the he was the villain in Venom. He was one of the other big Venoms that fought. <laughs> and he was the the main character in The Sound of Metal. He's, you know, big time actor. So these these are high profile folks 
who signed on to this film basically as executive producers. Um, but it's directed by Jonas or Jonas Poer Rasmussen. And it tells the story of his friend Amin, who is an Afghan refugee living in Denmark. And basically, he's someone who has never told the story of how he came to Denmark in full. And so it's him telling his story for the first time. And the way the film is made is uh, it's animated. So there are animated scenes of the present where they're in the interview, but also that then depict the story that he's telling. And it's the audio from the actual interviews that the director did with this guy who's his friend. Um, and it's mostly about the story of him coming to Denmark and it covers the globe. It is a globe spanning story of trying to find refuge from uh, essentially when the Soviets left Afghanistan, the Mujahideen took over. Um, but years spent in Russia trying to get trafficked to other countries out of Moscow, what that experience was like. It's really, really effective um, and really powerfully told in animation. And then it's also, there's a thread that's kind of about his present life and how this incredibly traumatic experience influences all of his present day relationships and decision-making. And it's just really a, a compelling story, really well told. And the way that the animation is used, there's occasionally archival like news footage that's interspersed. And then there is one bit that's a present day scene. Um, you never see his face. He's remaining anonymous. Um, wow. And that's part of the conceit of why the story is told this way. Um, but, you know, it won a bunch of awards and it was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best International Film, Best Documentary and Best Animated Film. Uh, and it did not win, but it was really interesting to see what the Best Animated Film category looked like because it's it was last year's winner. So it's the current, it was nominated in the current like Academy. And the nominees were The Mitchells versus The Machines, Raya and the Last Dragon, Luca, and Encanto, all of which are basically kids' films and like Pixar films and stuff, and then Flea. And in terms of all of the, I mean, the the anime Encanto was the winner. And in terms of all the, like, there's a, a lot of great stuff going on with all those films, but it was just fascinating to see how different Flea is from every other offering. So in terms of like imaginative use of the medium and really something that you probably haven't seen before in quite this way, that's another element that makes the film pretty special, which is that you get this incredible story, but also the way it's being told is something that I think is is a little bit different. I think, yeah, I think the only thing that's even a little bit comparable to it is Waltz with Bashir, which is an animated war documentary, basically, which is another, another, uh, it's the only thing I can think of that's kind of like this. Wow. No, that sounds amazing. It's very good. I'm... It's on Hulu. Hulu. If you've got Hulu, you've got access to it. Or I think you can rent it on Amazon for like $3. Hulu is really coming through, I have to say. Mainly through their deal with FX, which appears to be just making great series. <laughs> I have to say, yeah. FX gets me. They are really, yeah. I don't know what's going on over there. They must have a new head of creative development as of a couple of years ago because, geez, they are really doing well. Yeah, they are. They are. Everything I'm loving on Hulu, I'm like, wait a minute. Hey, 
This is co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. Five stars, maybe? Those reviews help with the algorithm and are a great way for us to find new listeners. And you can put anything in them. You can write whatever you want. You can just say, oh, this is a good podcast. I like this podcast. You could be like, hey, that Connor guy, he makes a lot of good points. Uh, Jack, why is he doing this outro so long? You know, get him off the mic. Whatever you feel like writing, head on over there. Five stars. Drop in the review. Uh, do you have thoughts about this poem? Is there a poem or poet you'd like us to cover on a future episode? Well, we'd love to hear from you. And there are tons of ways that you can get in touch with us. I mean, I guess you could drop it into an iTunes review. You could be like, five stars. Hey, why don't you talk about insert name of poet here? Um, but you can also send us an email. That's probably the best way to do it. Close talking poetry at gmail.com is our email address. Or you can find us on Twitter. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And the show is at Close Talking. On Instagram, you can find us there too. Uh, we are at Close Talking Poetry, and we are on Facebook at Facebook.com/slash Close Talking. We haven't gotten to TikTok yet, and we might never. Who knows? Anything is anything is possible. Um, speaking of all those social media platforms, a very special thank you to our incredible social media manager, Corey China, who keeps us active across the internet. And a thank you to all of you for listening. We will see you next time.